everybody, and welcome back to Back Porch Stories with Chuck Stead. This is episode two in our third season. So glad you're here. Chuck, what are we going to talk about today? Today's story is called Without Knowing Any Prayers. All right, then without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here's Chuck Stead. By the summer of 1959, my mom, Tessie Stead, was more than just a little concerned about the salvation of her family. Never a devoutly religious person, she nonetheless attended church once a week as she had been raised to do so. She kept rosary beads underneath her bed pillow, a crucifix over the bed, and a religious calendar hung in the kitchen. Our house was the old Stead family house that Walt's father had bought from Davidson of the Ironworks back in the 1920s. Chances were, ours, our time, was the most conspicuously Christian phase the building had ever seen. Walt's mother, my grandma Stead, was private about her Presbyterianism, and Tessie had no idea what sort of faith, if any, his father had practiced. Still, she had a lurking suspicion that there was some sort of paganism not so long ago in the Stead line, an occasional reference to herbal remedies, Indian lore, and that whole hunting thing. It was enough to strain her gentle parochial sensibilities. But the last decade had somehow brought her closer to a deeper sense of being, and with that, a greater doubt. Perhaps the most troubling had been Cecil B. DeMille's Cinemascope epic production, The Ten Commandments. While even Walter had to admit it was an interesting film, and the crowd down at the Lafayette Theater cheered at the end, Tessie fell into a somber introspection after seeing the film. It had been released for some time, and she didn't see it in the first run. It took her the third run, and even then she had to be nagged into it by her sisters from Jersey. She wasn't sure why she was troubled by the splendor of religious films, but she felt it had something to do with television. She complained to Walter that there was something odd about seeing Lucy and Ricky or Sid Caesar one night, and then Billy Graham or Bishop Fulton J. Sheen the next night. Walt didn't care either way. To Walt, television served the same purpose no matter what. It's just a story on a screen. Then, of course, there were her feelings of guilt. This is not to say that she ever articulated much as to what this guilt was about, but she was driven by it. She lectured her girls as to the damnation of a guilty conscience. Muffin, the middle girl, she often speculated as to what fired this theme. She's done something awful, you know. She muttered to Terry, the youngest of my sisters. Pensive and worried, Terry would say, Well, what do you think she did? Oh, she's lied or cheated or maybe she's got another family hidden away in Pearl River. You know, she works there five days a week. She spends a lot of time over there. Terry scratched the back of her wrist nervously. But Muff, 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 how could she afford another family? Maybe, Muffin said, they afford her. This was just a sort of suggestion that lent credibility to Muffin's wild theory, at least in Terry's eyes, who then meandered through a shopping list of speculations that included the number and names of Tessie's other children, as well as the comfortable upper-class environment they luxuriated in. By contrast, Walt's house was something of a backwoods hunting camp. Terry had a vivid imagination, especially when it came to her own traumatic autobiography. Muffin, on the other hand, believed that an imagination was only good for imagining possibilities. If you couldn't make a thing happen, what was the point in discussing it? Maybe, Muffin went on, maybe 
Mom has killed someone. Terry shook her head. In self-defense, Muffin assured her. Uh, she was forced to kill someone. Uh, someone attacked her. But Terry, killing is a sin anyway. Terry dropped to the center of the living room rag rug. And she squirmed. And she said, but, but, but Muff, if she was forced to, I mean, if it was either kill or be killed, still a sin, Terry. Hmm. Then what about in wartime? Now that's when you can do it, Muffin said knowingly. At least that's what they say. Terry looked at Walt's gun cabinet in the corner of the room. The dark wood, the black barrels stood silently waiting. She looked back to Muffin. What about... What about... I mean, I heard that the Germans that were killed in the war were also Christians. So what about that? Muffin looked at her. Hmm. So what about it? Well, how can both the good guys and the bad ones have the same God on their side? Muffin shrugged. I guess when you're dead, you'll find out, huh? Tessie stood in the dining room, quiet, holding her breath. She had heard the entire exchange. That Muffin would stand in judgment of her made her furious. But that the girls would question their own faith was even more troubling. Still, the problem was, these questions were tough ones. Tougher than Tessie could handle. She snuck away to the kitchen and proceeded to mix up a batch of fudge. She was just pouring it into an aluminum cake pan when Walt walked in from the back porch. He was carrying his fishing tackle box. He greeted her. Hello, Mama. He placed the box on the end of the Formica chrome table. He settled into one of the chairs. She walked to the GE fridge, and she yanked down the old freezer door. At the bottom revealed a, a basket draw full of frozen Mrs. Paul's fish sticks, bullheads from Cranberry Lake, some Borden's ice cream cartons. She squeezed the hot fudge pan in over top of a frozen cake of hoary crystals that encased two packages of A&P cream corn. And then she went back to the stove, put a light under her percolator pot. Walt started to untangle his bass plugs. They had fallen into the depth of the box. He pulled them out. They were all drawn together. Tessie set a pink plastic cup on the table. She stood with her back to the Hoosier cabinet. She stared at Walt for some time. Slowly, he looked up. What? Nothing, she said. She looked at the pot. She watched it. And then she looked at him, fingering his fishing lures. We're sending Chucky to the bleeding heart. He looked up. Oh, I figured we would. She crossed the room and took the bottled milk from the fridge. As she returned to the table, she said, Of course, I don't really know what kind of education he'll get there. Not like it's done the girls much good. Joan and Muffin, they've both gone off to public. I suspect Terry will go to Suffern High as well. Walt put the mess of plugs down. He reached into his back trousers pocket for his pipe. You don't think it did them much good? She shook her head. I didn't say that. I didn't. Well, I did, but I didn't. This is not what I said. This now, this thing I'm saying now is something that I didn't say yet. He waited. As he drew the little foil pack out of his back pocket, the tobacco, he waited. What I'm saying now... This is what I'm saying now. And what I'm saying now is if the Catholic school does them any good, then that's good. And maybe the only good it does them is what it does them before they go to a public high school. But, and this is only a but, I would have liked to have seen them become better Christians before they give it up. Walt hesitated. He looked at the foil pack, at the straight wood pipe. He looked at her. 
Give what up? Walter, can't you follow a conversation? I'm trying to, Mama. Give up going to Catholic school. That's what I mean. She turned to the pot. She saw the morning old coffee perking in the glass crown. As she poured her coffee, Walt packed his pipe. She continued only after she sugared and milked the coffee. (sighs) I mean, I mean. I, I know it's an expense. I know we already pay for public school with our taxes. But I still think we're giving them an opportunity by sending them to the bleeding heart. Walt lit his pipe, contemplated as little as he possibly could. It was best to remain neutral when she was in one of these conversations with herself. This discussion, well, it came his way every summer, toward the end of summer, just before school starts, and he had to come to understand that it was less a discussion and more a seasonal rant. He never questioned Tessie's attitude on matters of faith. Her questions were enough for him to just listen to. He obliged her by attending the earliest Mass in the parish, alone, sometimes with me. And then he went off to join his volunteer fireman cronies for a round of the Sunday morning congregation down at the fire hall bar. This was a tradition that reached long through the years, all the way back to the time when William Waite Snow, who ran the village in the early days, had pretty much established this tradition. In those days, the menfolk didn't bother with attendance at the local 4th Street Presbyterian Church. The woman held up the praying end of the family while the men hiked up McGregor Hill to play poker at Flat Rock. But that was a generation before television. Walt's buddies sipped 25-cent glasses of beer down at the fire hall with him now, and they commiserated about the state of things. It being Sunday, Sunday morning, the congregation often touched upon a religious theme. They usually wrapped up with a note of iconoclastic independence. The congregation wasn't long on church going. Despite some members strolling down after a visit to the local chapter to appease the wife, this congregation believed that matters of the spirit were best left unexamined. But Tessie's girls troubled her, as she had troubled her own mother by questioning her own faith back in the day. Even as a young mother in her late 20s, the news of atomic bombs obliterating cities in Japan struck her as an unholy act. Known for her biting wit, she lashed out at the hypocrisy of the fifth commandment when her girls were made to memorize it. She said, yes, thou shalt not kill, she told them. Yes, yes, unless, of course, you're commanded to do so. Everything about her sense of religion was laced with sarcasm. She belonged to the Sacred Heart Parish of Suffren, which she referred to as the Bleeding Heart. On occasion, she would offer up grace before a meal, which ran something like this. Thank you, Lord, for all the damn hard work I had to do for this meal. When news came of some natural disaster which took hundreds of innocent lives, she would shake her head and wonder aloud, What the hell was God thinking? So, when it came to matters of religion, Walt sat back and gave her a lot of space. Tessie sipped her coffee. You know, Chucky seems to believe his grandfather might be lurking about somewhere, like in his closet. Walt raised his eyebrows and nodded. They'd straighten him out down there at the bleeding heart, she said. Walt looked at the tangled lores. I just don't want my children to come to believe that there is no God watching over them despite all that this rotten, stinking world does to break you down and destroy you, well, I want them to believe that there's something good somewhere. He picked up the jitterbug. It's a banana-colored lore with a black spoon for motion. He believed it was supposed to look something like a mouse swimming across the water. One of the hooks was bent. 
right where his record catch, a largemouth bass, had been taken 15 years earlier. He and his brother were fishing that night up at Cranberry. It was an eight-pound fish. He took it to Stewie Swan, who mounted it on a board, powder gray. Over the years, he often looked up at the fish skin that was full of plaster, and he wondered if he ought to just hang that jitterbug from its mouth. Tessie said, It's not like we are a devoutly religious family. I mean, if it weren't for me, there'd be little or no talk of God. The night after he caught the bass, Walt remembered he and Dutchie went back up to the same spot on Cranberry. Dutchie started casting a spinner out in the same place, and he hit his record catch. It was a seven-and-a-half-pound largemouth. Must have been the mate from the other. Walter, he looked at her. Are you even listening? Yep. She shook her head. Sometimes I don't even think you care one bit about God. Oh, hell, of course I do. (laughs) Do you ever pray? He looked at the jitterbug. His pipe had gone out. He needed to fire it up again. Could use his pocket knife to tamp it down a bit. Well, do you? Oh, do I what? Do you know any prayers? Oh, good Lord, Tessie. Walter, we're talking about religion. Would you please refrain from taking the Lord's name? He looked back at the jitterbug. To our father, she suggested. You must know the our father. The pipe had gone out. He looked into the bowl, and forgetting about his pocket knife, he tamped the ash cake down with his pinky finger. Come on now, come on now, she encouraged him. Our father who art in heaven. Walt looked at her, leaning across the table, leering at him, puckering her lips slowly to form the next word sound. Hello, hello, hello. Jiminy Christmas, Mama, I don't know it, okay? She drew back into an erect position, sitting upright, as her spine would just about allow her to be as stiff as she possibly could, and she said, no, no, it is not okay. This is not something I am happy about. She stood violently, kicking the chair back. She walked her empty cup over to the sink, but rather than place it there, she turned and gestured it at Walt. Well, Chucky's going to the bleeding heart. I'll be damned if he's growing up without knowing any prayers. I think my favorite line in that whole story was he contemplated that as little as he possibly could. (laughs) Oh, man. They were, what a pair, huh? What a pair. Oh, man. I, just to be a fly on the wall, uh, well, I, I, that's kind of what I feel like right now, I, thanks to your stories, but they were fun. They were really fun. Oh, man. But that seems to be the, the conundrum, right? You, you, do you lead your life doing good for others because that seems the right thing to do, or is it because there's a larger system imposed on you telling you, to that's do what you right have to do. do. Right, right. <laughs> and there's a reward at the end. And right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> if you're good, you know. I I uh what is it what is it like in your family, you know, in your experience? Well, it's funny, uh when I hear stories from a Christian perspective, whether it's Catholic or uh evangelical or Protestant, whatever denomination, there's a very significant difference in the way this whole thing works and in the in the jewish tradition there is acknowledgement of a heaven and when you die you, you go there but there is no information about what that is and it's while you're working and living here on earth 
that is none of our business. And even at a funeral, when someone you love passes on, the rabbi will acknowledge that the person is going to heaven, but there is nothing more to be said about that. It's Very what did they do here? Yeah. And the whole outlook is, what are we doing for each other while we're here? And that's what God wants us to do. Makes sense. Focus on... Focus on the things you can change, yeah. the things you can make better, or whatever. Right. You know, in, instead of you know getting lost in in uh, the ether about the you know something that's it's not for us now yeah. to worry about that. Yeah. And in fact, I like that uh, to oversimplify things. I always see things in terms of Broadway shows, which can yeah. get you in a lot of trouble for other <laughs> reasons. But you know the the opening of Jesus Christ Superstar, all of these. Uh, you know, radicalized Jews were c contemplating what they're doing. And of all of them, Judas is the one who says, you've instilled too much heaven on their minds. They're thinking too much about what's not here. And we have to deal with the reality on the ground. The Romans hate us. We've always been the odd man out. And you're getting us in trouble now. Yeah. And that's a very Jewish <laughs> way to look at any situation yeah very sensibly too what was the line too from that same play israel and 4bc had no mass communication yes, you know right. they were you know don't don't you get me wrong right yep. <laughs> right yep. yeah well i i always think of obviously a fiddler on the roof because i've done that a number of times and and i i love the way the the discussion that tebya has with god is always about the present you know Dear God, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, it's, it's no great shame to be poor, but it, it's no great honor either. So what would be so terrible if I had a small fortune? You know, and that's the <laughs> prologue to if I were a rich man. And to me, it's just such a beautiful thing. It's like, you know, we'll talk about heaven and things like that when the time comes. But right now, i got to figure out a way to put supper on the table. You know, <laughs> it's, it's great. I love the way, uh, the way that works. But you're right. Uh, in our circles, we do. We, we talk about the life beyond a lot more, I think. You know, and, uh, and it, it, it's not really... <laughs> well, that's the thing in, in the Walt Tessie dialogue that I was exposed to. Yeah. Uh, Tessie, she, she was already... She already had her internal conflict over all of this stuff. All, all, everything. But I expressed that in the story. She had that internal, and she kept that going. But when she turned to Walt she was undone by the fact that he seemed to have a spiritual grounding, but he didn't express it in any way. And she would probe him. She would push him to find out where it was. And of course, the only thing, the only tools she had to use were, were her Catholic tools, which, you know, he, he acknowledged, but he didn't really engage them, but he did have his own sensibility. He once said to me that he took me to church one time. I, I we, a Sunday morning, we drove out to East Hilburn, we got out of the truck, we went for a walk. It was in the spring, it was a good spring, the ground was softening up. And and we walked for about 15 minutes into the woods, and he said, this is my church. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and, and you know, T Tessie could have passed that off as well. Yeah, it's, he's lazy, doesn't really want to go to church. He went to church every Sunday for her, you know, yep. but, but not for him. His church, he needed to go off and hang out in the woods, and it really was for him a... A, a spiritual exchange to to be a part of nature. Yeah, 
Well, I think that his going to church for her was a, was really an act of love too. You know, just to sort of say, if this makes you feel better, puts your heart at peace and at ease. Sure, sure, I can do that. Because well, all the years I I knew him, he was the most down to earth, genuine, authentic person I think I've ever known, and. And, and just a man of, of simple words, not because he didn't have the words, but because he only spoke what was necessary to say. That was it. You know, why, why go on and on like I do all the time, you know, when, when you can say it in three words. And, uh, you know, I love that about him. But I remember you telling me about his being in the woods with you one time and saying, this is my church. This is where, this is where I connect to God. Even after, you know, a hunting event he would show honor for the yeah. creature very powerful kind of a thing but but just to see them talk together because catholics are very it's very important there are rules there are rules mm-hmm. there are there regulations rules. there's rules there's oh, rules man right am i right joe I, you are very right now did you go to catholic school joe i did k to eight yep me to yep. T- me too k to eight and and I was always getting in trouble because I was always asking the questions that yeah. they did not <laughs> want me to ask. I remember Sister Roberta saying to me, uh, "You know, you're always trying to put God in a corner, Sereno. You're always trying to, you know, how will he get out of this one? You know, can't you just listen to what we're saying and accept it, you know, for what it is?" But uh, you, you had know. a question. You had a question. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask why is it that uh, the idea is that you go to Catholic school? K to eight, and then you go to public high school. Wouldn't it be that you'd want to have the full well, experience? Y- well, I didn't want to. <laughs> Not you. I'm, the parents. Yeah. I mean, whoever's sending you. Obviously, the kids oh, yeah. don't want they it. Had, yeah, I, re- I refused. I went and applied to three Catholic high schools, got accepted to two, but I knew from the beginning I was not going to go. I had exactly just, the same experience. I was not going to do that again, no. I was accepted to Don Bosco mm-hmm. and uh, to Bergen Catholic, okay? Yeah. And it was the last thing in the world I wanted to do because, first of all, all my friends were, most of them were going to public school. It was expensive, you know. Mm. And was, yeah. I was the, you know, in a family, I had 11 brothers and sisters. So we sure as hell didn't have the money to go to, because Catholic high school really got expensive, much more so than grammar school. But the other thing was that I think Bergen Catholic, they had Jesuits there. Yeah, they did. <laughs> These they were did. tough guys, yep. you yep. know. They didn't take they, any they, crap they and... They beat the crap out of you. Oh, yeah. If I ask them some of the questions I asked the nuns, oh, man, I got thrown through a well, window, I think. Well, I have to interject here, you, <laughs> you pagans. <laughs> I, I did the 12 years, and I have the scars to show for it. <laughs> right. Right. You, got the ball, you got the ball and chain on your ankle? Yeah, oh. I, I filed that off. I have tools. <laughs> so Tessie got you to go to a Catholic high school, huh? We, there's a story that I've, I'm going to tell at some point about this wonderful conversation that Tessie and I had when I was in seventh grade and about the agreement we made for me to continue uh, in the school that she would prefer. But I got stuff out of that agreement. We actually had this, we bargained, you know, because I saw how much it meant to her. And, um, and, and we had this agreement. And um, it took her five minutes to think about it. and She agreed, and, and I went to Albertus. No kidding. But we actually had this heart-to-heart what wasn't a part of it? He didn't give a damn one way or the other. Yeah. But uh, Tessie, you know, I was the last one. You know, the girls all went off. And, and I'd gotten in real trouble in seventh grade. So she was, 
she was tired of me getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, she said, well, if you, you want to go on to public, you can do that. And, and I saw how much it meant to her. And I thought, I can, I can get something out of this. Yeah. <laughs> Did your sisters go to Catholic high school? No, no, no. Okay. You're the only one that I'm the only one. Okay. I'm the only one, uh-huh. which, which unfortunately gave Tessie a glimmer of hope that I'd become a priest. <laughs> you know. right. Well, you all, right? I mean, that worked out yeah, great. Yeah. Well, I, I held, but it was just like the carrot. I could hold that out right. there, and there were things I could get, you know, I could do that yeah. I might not have had the same freedom to do. Sure. You know? There was the Future Priest Club of America. <laughs> and the YCS, the Young Christian no, really? Society. Oh, yeah. Yep. And you got this little, you got this little tiny little booklet every month from Father Martin. He would talk to you about the spiritual life and and uh, a recruitment, you know, mm-hmm. uh, effort, and and understandably, you know, l- l- let's see if we can't generate some new priests and things like that and nuns. And so y- back then, moms moms were the greatest generator of the next generation of priests and nuns. Yep, moms yep. were, you know, they were the ones that really kept this going. Uh, you know, sadly, in, in recently years, I don't know if it's sadly, but it's it, things have changed, as you know, and for lots of unfortunate and sad reasons. But uh, that's not the way it is anymore. You know, also, I, I got into Catholic high school uh, in 1967, the fall of 67. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at the latter half of the 60s. And culturally, we all know what happened then. And so I, I embraced this new institution. It was co-ed. I, I, I also got accepted to Don Bosco, but that was all boys. So I preferred, to, well, go to the co-ed one because I might want to date a girl or something, you know. Mm-hmm. So I went to that one. And, um, and I got to know these nuns, many of whom were radicalized by the 60s yeah. in their own light, in their own fashion. And in the four years that I was there, some of them just dropped off and they gave up the church because they felt the church was, you know, it, it needed to make a statement about the Vietnam War. It needed to be have greater clarity about civil rights. You know, the 60s was a, an amazing, yeah. that latter half of the 60s was when it all happened, the social revolution. And I was in this institution that was really experiencing a painful reality. And attendance started to drop off. Enrollment started to drop off. Things started to drop off because this structure was now getting dated and not moving forward. And it had, the Second Ecumenical Council had happened when I was in grade school as a a vehicle to update. But in high school, that updating was, uh, we we did folk masses and we brought people in to do the singing and the folk masses. And we could see our clerics standing around just shaking their heads. I mean, that to them was like, what the hell is happening What's here? What's going man? on? Sure. And we, and we kids were exposed to that. You know, yeah. we saw that going on. So it, it, in a way, it was an interesting as hell place to be yeah. in at the time. Oh, yeah. And yeah. the young priests were saying, I'll tell you what's going on. Survival. Yeah. Survival of our, yep. of our religion and our yep. faith. We're trying to bring in, you know, more young people. And, and I, that was, I, I thought it was kind of a neat thing, kind yep. of a good thing. You know, we had two cousins that were in the religious life, mm-hmm. uh, Barbara, mm-hmm. who, as you, you know, was a part of the, the folks who decided to leave, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, she was a nun. Yep. Um, and, and happily found somebody that she loved very much and lived a happy life. And that's, that's wonderful. Um, and then there's Joe Schlaper, mm-hmm. you know, who is as as uh, stalwart and true a priest as any I have ever met in my life. 
Uh, it's in his heart. It's in his mind. He he believes in in the, the life beyond and in the in the doctrines and everything. I admire him for that. I I have a lot of trouble with it myself, but but I I, I get it. I understand, mm-hmm. and and I always approach this with you know what, I could be wrong. He could be right. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, or frankly, I don't have to be wrong in order for him to be right. Well, two things can be right at the same time. Yeah. Well, anyway, <laughs> we've done another interesting one. <laughs> Got to keep this up. Boy, there seems to be a new spirit of energy here. And uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you bet. So uh, very good. Very good. So thanks, everybody, so much for being a part of uh, this week's podcast. And Chuck, what are we going to talk about next week? Oh, next week. The name of the story is Everything Can Be Something Else. I believe that's true. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their 20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions, and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the Children's Chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based kinder music program. The children's chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the children's chapter at 845-522-9652. MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning, so 
Please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story. Thanks, guys. Thank you. you. Bye.